allows us to expand our programming with more on-demand programs so you can listen when you want or download them at any time. Area 941 is just another reason why people say, I heard it on KPFA. And you are listening to 94.1 KPFA and 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, 97.5 K248BR in Santa Cruz and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3.30. Stay tuned next for Cover to Cover. Hello there, and welcome to another edition of Cover to Cover, Open a Book, Frame to Frame. My name is Raina Cowan, and I will be with you for the next half hour talking about film. You know, it's very rare that one can come up with two films at one time where I think storytelling is incredibly strong and passionate. And right now, there are two films that really struck me, and I wanted to talk about both of them today. Uh, one is in called Three Identical Strangers, and we'll go to that one next, but we'll start with Leave No Trace. This is the new film by Deborah Granick, and uh, she has done previous films, Down to the Bone and Winter's Bone, both really excellent films. She's an astute, careful, and sensitive filmmaker, and she explores the lives of those suffering due to the impact of trauma, poverty, and mental illness, as well as addiction. So the new film, uh, Leave No Trace, is a mesmerizing exploration of the connection between a father and a daughter who've been living undetected for years in Forest Park, a vast woods on the edge of Portland, Oregon. Based on a novel, the story told in an intimate one where we remarkably begin to see and experience their interior worlds as they respond to many obstacles and threats. The teenage girl, Tom, uh, played by Thomason Harcourt McKenzie, and her veteran father, Will, played by Ben Foster, have a random encounter which leads to their discovery and removal from the park and into the world of social services. And as they're placed in a home and try to adapt to their new surroundings, uh, something happens, and then they begin a perilous journey into the wilderness, seeking complete independence and forcing them to confront many things. So with me to talk about the film is, oh, she's not there. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, I, oh, okay. We are waiting for the director to call to talk about this film, and... Um, <laughs> Let's see if I can think about how to talk about the film in a way that captures some of the elements of the film. So uh, this is a really remarkable and unique story because what we're hearing is these two people who are living together and without using much sort of verbal contact with each other, the mother, I'm sorry, the father and the daughter, they are remarkably able to communicate. It's something that's so sensitive that we don't usually see in film. So uh, uh, it's really quite powerful and haunting. Uh, perhaps what we can do uh, Erica is try to get the other filmmaker on the phone and we can start in the reverse direction. Uh, these these sort of technical snafus always sort of get in the way. So uh, I have to say that Down to the Bone and Winter's Bone w uh, were both films that I found really remarkable. Uh, if you recall, 
uh, Winter's Bone, which was nominated for four Academy Awards uh, and and featured Jennifer Lawrence and sort of her first role was about this young girl in high school who was trying to figure out how to get money together so that her house wouldn't be foreclosed upon and it was very powerful. Uh, Leave No Trace is sort of a follow-up in a certain way because it tells the story of somebody who isn't really available uh, to the the regular world, but instead... Oh, okay. Oh, good. Deborah's here. So we will um, start with this. Deborah, welcome to KPFA. Thank you. Uh, I've just gone through uh, introducing you and uh, saying that uh, it's really remarkable to speak to you because I think you're one of the most talented filmmakers in the U.S. today. Uh, and I explained a little bit about the film. One of the things that strikes me about it is that you did a remarkable job at capturing the interior of the two characters, of the father and the daughter, which is so difficult in film in general, but especially in the situation when there's so little dialogue. And I was wondering how you thought about it. Well, I always, from reading the book and, and thinking about this adaptation, I realized a uh, a priority or a very special attention would we have to be paid to process what these two characters do and meaning on screen tasks, skills that they manifest, the actual tactile nature of um, being in that forest, knowing how to navigate within it, how to make a functional camp work so that it can sustain their day to day and to do this, we needed to be trained. It's not it's not a skill set that I have, and we enlisted the help of a primitive skills trainer. And then when Tom and Ben, the actors playing those leads, uh, you know, kind of I would say started to get proficient at these skills, we knew that they would. I watched them in rehearsal, and I knew it would be very photogenic. But I also started to see that it took the place of some dialogue. That it, it would be a glance if if she was creating her feather stick her tinder with with her knife and her father looked over and noticed that you know she was doing an excellent job it, it was a look it was a look and maybe he would comment maybe he would compliment but it started to show me that they were not they were not very verbose you know they weren't they weren't um they weren't over explaining things they were doing things watching observing and that started to be the front and center form of communication. And, and I was going to say that you know, verbal exposition and, and explanation and chatter or any extra language took a big backseat. So this is, uh, you weren't planning on that. You actually had written dialogue for them, but then it became clear that it wasn't necessary in the same way? It was always terse. I mean, there, there was dialogue, and, and then we stripped it down in the rehearsal per- period and then I would say sometimes day of and, and, and some dialogue we would film just in, in any traditional narrative protocol of filming. You know, we would film it and then some of that gets you, you delete some in, in the editing process. So, yes, overall, from the first draft of this script to what's on screen, there was a progression of deleting dialogue as we went. Well, what I think is remarkable about this film is that it feels so intimate and that even though, you know, the, uh, film in a way is so flat, you were able to create something that felt 
more and more rich. So we wind up empathizing with the characters as we're going along and really understanding them in a very intimate, close-up way. So do you think that it was the change in the dialogue or do you think that there was something about uh, sort of how you positioned yourself through the course of directing this film that kept on being able to be modified based on what you were seeing? I've been thinking about this a lot because I've had to really dwell on some of these questions in a way that aren't always so in the front of one's consciousness when you're filming. Um, and I, I was thinking recently that in, this, in the settings that were vast, meaning in the forest settings, when we would, in order to be with them, to come close to them, the DP was on, you know, he was on his knees. He was using knee pads, and he would come very close to their fire pit or to where she was cooking where, or to, to, to their tent. And that played out one another time in a very palpable way when they had gotten lost deeper in the film on a very in a, in a increasingly inclement and uh, kind of physically threatening way as... as as, the, as that day progresses and, and we had to come very close when they got very cold and when they had to lean in or uh, minister some assistance to each other, we had to come very close to them even though they're in a very large space. I mean, infinite, almost, you know, what would feel almost infinite in terms of what the eye can see. You know, they were, they were surrounded in all directions by a very, not just, not, not just a sparse force, but a very old growth kind of forest with, with um, you know, just very textured density. So I, I, I'm, I'm now coming to this belief that uh, the bigger the environment, in some ways the intimacy is, is, is achieved by the closer you, you get to your characters. You know, without, and I don't necessarily mean by uh, lens closeness. I don't mean like going for an ECU, you know, extreme close-up on the face, by virtue of the lens, but I, I actually think the proximity of the camera to the, to this to the people that you're trying to get close to emotionally, um, yeah. So that that's something that's struck me in these conversations. It's it's also interesting that somehow when you're speaking about this level of closeness, that initially in the film, that the father and daughter don't need to communicate verbally because it seems like they're almost of one mind in uh, my way of thinking. And then slowly, Tom, the girl, becomes sort of more of her... She starts developing her own way of thinking that both matches and doesn't match her father in some kind of way. So that there's a shift, uh, a shift away from intimacy. And often in films, it's the reverse, where people slowly come together. And here it is, the most important part is the way that they're sort of separating at the same time mm. that they're together. I, I think that's true. And I, 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 um, something I treasured about this character, the teen girl character, was she inherently uh, provides a path for experiencing her in a very cinematic way, meaning she's an observant person. And, uh, you know, film loves nothing more than an observant person because it is a visual medium. So what started to be a very rich process of, of, you know, kind of collaborating on this film with this character was that it allowed us to see what she sees. And because she's frequently seeing things in a very fresh way, I was enjoying that. 
she's not a jaded person as a character and therefore things have a fresh when she peers into something wants to observe other teens we know she's coming to it with curiosity which also allows us to come with it to you know arrive with some curiosity oh why do other teens uh take seem to become immersed and, and get fulfillment from taking care of barnyard animals you know what for her the question is hmm 4-h what is it why do why do other teens in america like it and might i like it so there's i, I just uh as a person trying to figure out what tom does and what she sees and what it means to her uh she gives a lot you know she gave me a lot of she gave us, you know, me and the filmmaking team, a lot of options in some ways. Yes, we're talking with Deborah Granick. Her film is Leave No Trace. You know, the, the thing that's also really interesting about your film is the mise-en-scene or the way that, in your case, like the shooting, which was exquisitely beautiful, um, the editing, the music, the acting, they all come together to carefully create the story. And I'm wondering how you think about that, because... All of the elements just seemed so perfectly fit for this story. Oh, well, I'm, I'm, it feels so good to hear that because I'm, I'm actually thinking of all the colleagues you just named. You know, all the other people who contributed on on in each of those areas. And I was I I'm picking up especially on the idea of uh, score or music that um, you know was invoked to support the story. And in this case, the score is done by Dick and Hinchcliffe, who's out of the UK and he someone who I really appreciate for the fact that he can be uh, such a minimalist and I've I've liked that in his work for other films and I was I wanted something where the score was not editorializing where it's not cueing us where we're supposed to feel specific things you know there's sometimes it does aid and abet maybe a sensation of adrenaline or uh, you know some some cues are used that might be very commonly associated with a chase. There, you know, there's a brief chase scene in this film, but outside of that, uh, the sound the soundscape was the, the score was really supposed to yield to the soundscape. So the sound designer was really our our primary bed of what people are hearing in this film, meaning the na- the natural sounds and uh, and. I would say um, the na- the natural sounds and also the perspective that as they come closer and closer to town, the built world becomes loud as they recede. So, you know, making that um, palpable for anybody who's experiencing the film. Right. You know, it's it's so brave when I think about it, when I think about films like Captain Fantastic, for example, where there's sort of this Hollywood twist on somebody living their own kind of world uh, in the country without any kind of restraints. And you actually made it both real, authentic, and uh, it's really about, uh, I think it creates an environment where one starts having sympathy for the veterans and for people who are homeless in a way that's completely different. So uh, I, I think that was really remarkable that you were able to stick to your vision. I had a lot of rich influences. You know, this this project brought me to, a, a, I, I want to say almost a national treasure or a collection of uh, documentary films about um, veterans who ha- in previous times have sought seclusion and living 
in many ways similarly undetected, um, had lived on wild lands, and, they, and these, there was a poetry to this quest for almost a kind of um, self-rebalancing or a, a self-medicating to have very strong feelings that were unnamed in, in, the previous, in the previous cycle of this, which would be the Vietnam era. And there wasn't there wasn't the name for PTS and uh, and PTSD, uh, but there was there were the symptoms and there were the issues and there were and there was the extremely active life of the mind and the conscience that they were grappling with, and this these um, we have a short tolerance for what we can what we consider the window of acceptable discourse about the aftermath of war, two to five years after you know combat. And, and understanding that the whole warrior class has returned, that has experienced this, we're done with it as a public. You know, we, we oh, you know, understand what we, we, we you know, nationally we say we understand, but, you know, it's kind of, you should be done with it now. You know, hmm. we don't want any more headlines about this. We don't really want to hear too much more. Um, and we also might say simultaneously, we, 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 hope, we hope it's resolved. We hope we don't, we're not having these feelings anymore. But that's not how it, it plays. And so this discussion and was also very accurately and, and beautifully articulated by the author David J. Morris in his book, The Evil Hours. And together, this, his, his memoir and these documentary films pushed me to acknowledge that none of this was new to the sand wars. But it's here again, and and I and I really I really the more I worked and read and thought about the character of Will, Tom's father, uh, the more I saw there was precedent for him in our real in our in in our in our literally our national heritage that in the Olympic Peninsula, not far from where we were filming, um, men had Vietnam era soldiers had sought refuge and had lived in some similar ways. That's so interesting. Now, you made also a documentary about uh, somebody who was a vet. Do you think that that there was something about uh, the experience of shooting a documentary impacted the way that you saw this as well? Or do you think that, um, you know, is this a political calling or does it feel more like you're just really seeing the implication of uh, war over the time? I think both, but I, I, I want to say that the documentary absolutely informs. You know, I was having a very long conversation over a period of three years with a, a vet who described in depth his journey through VA, you know, help from the VA, what worked, what didn't work, um, sort of the backfiring of the idea that we could medicate some of PTSD away, we could medicate conscience, you know, and uh, he was such a, again, he, in, with exacting detail, talked about different excursions, different people who treated him, different people he spoke to. Um, and then even even so, in some ways so optimistically, was able to also recount when, when, when some therapy actually really worked. And, you know, some, all of this was very much informing me to the point which, you know, there are vets telling me which drugs they tried, you know, which, which of the medications they tried. And, and there was poetry even in that, you know, to hear someone say, you know, when's the last time that drug stopped a nightmare? You know, just, I loved, it was almost a, you know, there was almost a lot, there was, there was philosophy in it as well about what you can and cannot mechanistically 
change about how the brain works and Going, go, you know, in, I, I would say every step of the way, even where the vet that I made the documentary with, uh, Ron Hall, I was so inspired by where he lived, and that was chronicled a lot in, in, in the portrait of him. Um, it was such a precursor to the idea of tiny houses. You know, it's, it's an RV community, and, and there was a very distinct anthropology of how people were making their lives work in very small dwellings, very mm-hmm. scrappy survivors, very little cushion, and yet. There were um, rituals in place to make sure the community functioned. You know, there was a lot of brotherhood happening. Um, and those were things that when I found a place here in Oregon that resembled some parts of his community, I, I said, this is such a continuum. I'm, I'm, I'm primed to, to look for this now. Right. It was not something. It was not a kind of community structure that I had previously ever been familiar with. And I was primed so that when I saw it, and when the, and the location scout said, take a look at this place, I said, ah, this is a community in which some of the things I've really relished about Stray Dog's community <laughs> exist, you know. Right. And so, absolutely, That's... people influence you. Every time you pick up a camera, people are going to influence you with the specificity of how they're organizing their life, how they're surviving. And there's no doubt that that which leaves an imprint will carry forward, you know, you'll, you'll be... Uh, extremely influenced by right. that kind of observation. We're speaking with Deborah Granick, whose film Leave No Trace opens on Friday. You know, you the film itself is based initially on a novel, and it's very difficult to use a novel as a starting place for a film. So I'm wondering what inspired you and how were you able to kind of take the essence of the novel in a way that I think you did so successfully because it's such a great storytelling kind of film. But there must have been things that you had to kind of shave away to make it work. Yes. Uh, adaptation, uh, in this case from Peter Rock's novel, My Abandonment, um, is an interesting set of exchanges. You have to, you, you definitely have to lose some things from the novel, and then you have to also augment the, uh, from specific details that you find in real life. So, it's uh, a process of of uh, looking at the tropes that a novel can use that are really rich that we're so accustomed to. It's, it's I, you know, I always think, oh. The sky's the limit with a novel. You know, you can go backwards and forwards in time. You can really know a lot about someone's inner life when they're when they're a first person narrator. And in social realism, frequently, which is the genre that I you know I associate myself with, um, there frequently is not the use of voiceover, and there's not a lot of exposition. It's, it's it's very common to meet people in their everyday lives in the here and now, and you don't get to know a whole lot about them as as it would be when you meet someone and, and you're, you start the conversation right then and there and you're not, you're, you know, in the first bits of meeting them, you can't ask all about where they came from, who their parents are, not until later. And so I, I, I think that that's one of the starkest phases of adaptation. Okay, so mm-hmm. I'm, not using, I'm not using the first person narration. I'm not, I can't talk, I can't really reveal so much of their inner life. I have to show everything I can't tell for something to be very visual, you know. And uh, so those are the sort of strictures that you work within. And then from there, when when 
to get the luck, which we had in this film, to film the film in the, in the place that was described in the book. I mean, we came to the exact coordinates that, is called out in, that are called out in Peter's book. Then the ranger that you, you know, when you tour the park, and the ranger talks about where people who are unhoused or undetected have, have managed to make their dwellings. Specifics. A man who lived in a park for three years showed us some things and he told us about his particular way of getting his groceries living trying to maintain hygiene and from there it radiates out then the social workers inform us so it's a series of real life informants who start to then fact check your script fact you know in some ways it's not fact checking the novel because the novel is an outright work of imagination based in in this case it was based on a on a kernel of a true story. So social realism goes through a, a really kind of, <laughs> I would say, in-depth process of fact-checking and including new information that what maybe perhaps was not included in the novel. Well, you know, it's so funny. I mean, although I have to say that, of course, there's a lot of filmmakers who use social realism that do, like, exceptional films, like the Dardan brothers. But there is a way where it's so easy to have slipped into um, something that's kind of more prearranged or pre-known or overdramatic. And so you actually have to figure out how to get the right balance. And somehow you were able to do that. Uh, so that it doesn't seem like it's uh, overdone in any kind of way. Well, thank you. <laughs> I feel, you know, it's very, um, I want to say, encouraging to hear. And I think I do, I do like to, um, you know, I, I'm someone who veers away from things that, uh, let me, I'll, I'll rephrase this and just be utterly frank. I, I get anxious sometimes about uh things that might veer into something I call overwrought or so I do tend uh, in almost the whole spectrum not just the score to be more on the terse and minimalist side though I don't want to be cold and alienating either so you know you're right it's a a balance I think with someone like Tom in the picture Thomas and who plays Tom um, just by virtue of some of her gestures and her her tone um the way that she, her face really reflects uh, an interest in the world and a curiosity. You know, she's doing a lot to allow you to, um, like we said earlier, be close to her, but she's not doing it in, you know, you're not necessarily hearing text from her diary and you're not, you know, she, it's not something she's saying. It's, it's in that way, the viewer is very much a participant. It's the viewer tracking her. Right, and that was remarkable that she was able to to do something that was so minimalist. I mean, she's young, and yet she was able to show so much from inside out in a way that I think is, uh, you got a remarkable performance from her. Well, she, she really took a shine to the idea of immersing herself and doing, you know, this in-depth skills training, as did Ben, and once she got her real knife, you know, she was, there was very little time, you know, with the, the crew. And I would notice um, that there were so few times when she wouldn't actually be now then using that knife and continuing to feather, you know, accumulating feather sticks so that every time we would have to light a fire for one of the scenes, they were ready and, or, and, she, and she produced more. So she, she really, 
uh, and you know dirt under the nails, inclement weather, wet 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 clothing. You know, she was feeling a lot, and then I think that comes across that she had an actual. The given circumstances were becoming very vivid for her, and that came true certainly like with the bees. Oh, you know, I, beautiful! I yes, that she would take such an interest, and that the the real life beekeeper was able to triage or do a little test to say, I have a hunch that that Tom very readily could be someone who could handle bees. And so she did training with the beekeeper and it was very accurate that her calmness and her, her the mannerisms that she has, you know, made it possible for the bees to feel that she was no threat whatsoever and she could then remove her gloves and actually handle them. Wow, that's astounding. The film Leave No Trace opens up this uh, exclusively at the Embarcadero in San Francisco this Friday and then at the AMC Kabuki and the Albany Twin on Friday, July 6th. Uh, Deborah Granick, I want to thank you so much for joining us and talking about Leave No Trace. Uh, it's a mesmerizing, wonderful film and uh, wonderful storytelling. And I think you did a bravo job. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you. It was a big pleasure to speak with you. Okay, thanks so much. My name is Raina Cowan, and this has been uh, Frame to Frame. I've been here talking to you about Leave No Trace. Unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to talk to you about Three Identical Strangers, which is a wonderful film, and I will cover that next time. Thanks so much for listening. Ever wonder how a profoundly serious intellectual might view this president? Well, one of the world's most celebrated moral philosophers, acclaimed scholar and humanist, Martha Nussbaum, professor of law and ethics at the University of Chicago, author of so many books, is coming to the Bay to express her views. Her new book is The Monarchy of Fear, a philosopher looks at our political crisis. She'll discuss the ruthless punishing of immigrants, the powerlessness felt now by millions, the erosion of democracy, the deepening of collective fear, and what we can do about it. Martha Nussbaum will be at our co-sponsor St. John's 